Oh, dear listeners, how we pamper you. <laughs> I can't believe we're actually doing one this week because it's our fucking wedding week. Do it all for the nookie. We do it all. We do it all for the, for you, dear listeners. Yes, Molly and I are. We are already married, but we are having our long delayed wedding. Yes. Uh, Friday. It is now Wednesday evening, and this will go up like Sunday. Yeah. We're banking a pod for for you people who just cannot get enough. <laughs> oh my god. We're doing. I'm doing it because I like it and it's fun and it's good. Uh, yes, I'm doing it for all those reasons too. Oh, uh, no, you didn't. But you know, I'm just saying we pamper you. We pa- pamper. A word that David Foster Wallace has uh, considered before in a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again. He talks about the the sort of etymology of being pampered and how it reduces one to uh, a state of babyhood, uh, yes. wearing wearing pampers, pampers diapers. Become baby. Become baby again. I, I will certainly want to become baby after this wedding. Oh, my God. I'm never being an adult again. Yes. Too many decisions. We, we must return to baby. If people ask me, uh, if and no one's going to, um, you know, what do you think about getting married? Do you think it's a good idea or like or having a wedding? Do you think a wedding is a good idea? I'll be like, I don't know. Do you like making decisions? Because if you don't like making decisions, then I would suggest you not have a wedding. Yeah, just like everything, it's a lot of emails. But if you love making decisions, and I think some people do. Yeah, that's true. Some people that making decisions is a, a way of sort of taking ownership over your your own personal universe. Uh, anyway, so we got enough for you. Yeah. Uh, coming out. By the time you hear this, it it's already over. We've been we, we've been wedded. It's too late. Again, you can't come to the thing and say um, yes. the I pro- I protest. Uh, anyway, should we get into this? Yeah. Let me pull up some tennis highlights. Fourteenth November, year of the dependent adult undergarment. P. T. Kraus, <clears throat> North Cambridge. That infamous deceptive post seizure feeling of well being. Okay, okay, great. It's poor Tony. Yes. That broken fever, reversal of fortune type, high-hearted feeling after a neuroelectric event. Poor Tony Krause, awoke in the ambulance, lizardless and continent and feeling right as rain, lay there and flirted with the blue-jawed paramedic leaning over him, certain body entendres on expressions like vital signs and dilation, until the paramedic radioed ahead to Cambridge City's E-room to cancel the crash cart manipulated his skinny arms in a parodic minimal mambo lying there, fiddle-dee-deed the paramedic's warning that post-seizure feelings of well-being were notoriously deceptive and transient. And then also the little-mentioned advantage to being destitute and in possession of a health card that's expired and not even in your name, hospitals show you a kind of inverted respect. A place like Cambridge City Hospital bows to your will not to stay. They all of a sudden defer to your subjective diagnostic knowledge of your own condition, which post-seizure condition you feel has turned the corner toward improvement. They bow to your quixotic will. It's unfortunately not a free hospital, but it is a free country. (laughs) They honor your wishes and compliment your mambo and say, go with God. It's a good thing you can't see what you look like, though. And the serendipity of Cambridge City Hospital being just an eight-block stroll east on Cambridge Street and then south on Prospect through mentholated autumn air, through Inman Square, and up to Antitois Entertainment, uh, maybe the last one place where renewed post-seizure on the diagnostic upswing, if still slightly shaky young gender dysphoric, might expect yet a bit of kindness, pharmacological credit, since the affairs of Woe and Copley Library and Hart. <clears throat> Uh, wait, do, we'll, wait, is he implying that Antidua Entertainment would also is also a drug front? 
Yes. Did we know that from our first discussion with them? I mean, we knew no. that they were seedy characters. But. No, I think we only knew Woe was a guy who sold um, the, the bad, shot. the yeah, the bad heroin. Um, but I don't think we had. I'd have to double check, but I don't think that there's a connection to anti All right, that information until seems now. new. Seems new. new to me. The big brick cake of the hospital behind Krauss in purple twilight. The brisk click of his heels on pavement. Boa semi-formally loose on his shoulders and down beneath each arm, hand holding red leather collar closed at the throat, head up and staying that way on its own, steady eyes meeting with blasé dignity, the eyes of whoever passes. The dignity of a man risen by will from the ashes of withdrawal and now on the upswing and with places to go and potentially considerate Canadians to see. A charming and potentially once again in the not-too-distant future gorgeous creature with the renewed wherewithal to now meet the eyes of Inman Square pedestrians veering sharply away from the re- residual smells of men's room stall and subway vomit, the ashes from which he's been rescued and risen once again, feeling righter than rain. So we had already seen he was camping out in the... Um, in the, the men's room of like a library or something, yes. drinking a NyQuil that he was shoplifting from a yeah, f- this of a is pharmacy. now like seven hundred, like several hundred pages ago. But yeah, he yeah. was okay. The, I feel like the last time we got full info on him was yes, the sequence where he is camping out in a library and then had the seizure on the subway. On the subway, as and he was I'm going trying to take to go it that this something. is now going to be w- him walking as we had seen in a chapter and a half ago. Uh. Pemulus's brother seeing him walk by yeah. the str- the front. Correct. I see how this works. I, yeah. I get your tricks. Okay, great. Yes. Hmm. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Where am I? Yes. A rind of moon hanging cocked above a four-spired church, and the emergent stars are yo-yos, you feel, after a seizure. Poor Tony feels as if he could cast them out, draw them in again at will. The way poor Tony Krause, Lola's sister, and Susan T. Cheese became mercenary adjuncts to something dour Bertrand uh, Antitois had invited them to call the Front Contre sorry, was that for a heavily cut bundle to split six ways, Lola's sister, Susan T. Cheese, P.T. Krause, Bridget Tenderhole, Equus... <laughs> Equus Reese and the late Stokely Darkstar McNair, so I, I think that was the guy who mm-hmm. did the uh, did the hotshot, had had to wear identical red leather coats and auburn wigs and spike heels and go and hang around the lobby of Harvard Square's Sheridan Commander Hotel with six mannish-looking women in the same wigs and coats while an androgynous Quebecer insurgent who filled out his H-slash-his weird uh let red leather coat in a way that made bridget tenderhole dig his nails into his palms in sheer green envy came through the commander's revolving lucite doors and strode purposefully into the crowded apolette ballroom and threw foul semi-liquid violet waste from a souvenir miniature waste displacement barrel in the face of the Canadian Prime Minister of inter and Trade, who <laughs> okay. was addressing the U.S. press from a leaf-shaped rostrum. <laughs> the decoys were then required to mill hysterically in the lobby, all 12 of them, and then hit the revolving doors and disperse in a dozen different vectors as the androgynous, waste-wielding Quebecer legged it out of the epaulette ballroom and lobby, pursued by white-suited men with earplugs and Cobray M11 subautomatics, 
So the security guys see identical epicene figures high-heeling it away in different directions and get fuddled about who to chase. Do you okay, understand yes. what this is? Uh, yes. It's a little, co- a little kind of a complex sentence, but... I, I, I get the imagery. Yes, they had to, to mingle in the hotel lobby so somebody dressed the exact same way could throw, could a, do waste, a, terrorism. Could throw a waste at the PM yes. and then come into the lobby and then uh, all act as decoys. Yes. Susan T. Cheese and poor Tony met the Antitua brothers, only one of whom could or would speak and who'd been in charge of the diversionary aspects of the Sheridan commander operation and clearly had been subordinate to still other Quebecers of way higher IQ. Kraus and STC had met them at Inman Square's Riles Tavern, which had gender dysphoric night every second Wednesday. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, Wow, I feel like d- gender dysphoria was not as in the conversation in 1996 I as it is now. I don't think that was a, as much a household name as it is now, yes. Yeah, it is. Uh, I would say gender dysphoria used to be a who, and now it's a them. Yes. Uh, blah, blah, Which, sorry, um, gender dysphoric night every second Wednesday and attracted comely and unrough trade and which poor Tony passed now, Riles, just after the Mano War Grill, now only a block or so from the Antitois glass and novelty shop front, feeling not so much quite ill again as just deeply tired after only five or so blocks, that post-fever, sleep-for-a-week type cellular fatigue. And is debating with himself about whether to have a go at the purses of the two young and unstriking women walking just a few steps ahead, both of their purses hanging only by the flimsiest of evening gown width straps from slumped shoulders, the duo interracial, rare and disquieting in Metro Boston, the black girl talking a click a minute and the white one not responding, her weary, stolid plod and air of inattention fairly begging for a purse snatch, both of them with the air about them of routine victimization, the sort of demoralized lassitude poor, poor Tony felt always guaranteed a minimum of protest or pursuit. Were these, are these two perhaps people coming back to Ennett House the pew, night? Pew, 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 pew. Got it? Yes. Uh, I think this is after the night of the thing. I, it's, it's very bad of me that I don't know the exact date, but it's November 14th, and I kind of thought that the shooting at E.T. or Ian. What, what am I thinking? Ended House was a, a few days before. But let's figure it out. Yeah, great. Okay, well, I'm glad that I, I clocked that. Though the white girl wore formidable-looking running shoes under her tartan skirt. So intent was poor Tony Krause on the logistics and implications of the possible purses dangled as if by God right before him. How different to hit the Antitois doorstep with liquid assets to request a transaction rather than bare charity, more almost a social call than a contemptible withdrawn snivel for compassion. So intent, as he sidestepped an impressive pile of dog droppings and passed across the broad windows of the Man o' War, that he never saw his old former crewmate, Mad Maddie Pemulus, a sure source of compassion, looking up and out and down and back up, aghast in recognition of what poor Tony has come through the corridor to resemble. Great. That's one segment? That's one segment. Okay. <laughs> okay, great. Things are still happening. Yeah, it's just funny that that's why I, when we when you said Maddie last chapter, I'm like, who the fuck? Because like, at this point, every person we see is basically someone we've seen before. Yeah, but yeah, Maddie's, Maddie's new as of last episode. Yeah. Jeffrey Days noted the way most of the male residents of Ennett House have special little cognomens for their genitals, <laughs> e.g. Bruno, Jake, Fang, that's Minty, the one-eyed monk, Fritzy, <laughs> Russell the love muscle. Ew. 
He speculates this could be a class thing. Neither he nor Ewell nor Ken Erdetti have named their units. Like Ewell, Day enters a certain amount of comparative class data in his journal. Dooney Glenn called his penis Poor Richard. Chandler Foss confessed to the moniker Bam Bam. Lenz had referred to his own unit (laughs) as the Frightful Hog. (laughs) <laughs> Day would die before admitting he missed either Lenz or his soliloquies about the hog, which had been frequent. The penis in question had been that curious, two or three shades darker than the rest of Lenz, that people's penises sometimes are. Lenz had brandished it at his roommates whenever he wished to emphasize a point. It had been short and thick and blunt, and Lenz described the hog as a primo example of what he called the Polish curse, viz. undistinguished length but sobering circumference. Easy on the bottom, but tears hell out of the sides, brother. (laughs) This had been his description of the Polish curse. A surprising amount of Day's recovery journal is filled with quotations from R. Lenz. Lenz's discharge had moved the tax attorney, Tiny Ewell, up into the three-man room with Day. Ewell was the one man here with whom a conversation of anything remotely approaching depth could be held, so Day was nonplussed when he found himself, after a couple long nights, almost missing Lenz, his obsession with time, his patter, his way of leaning up against the wall upside down in his briefs, or brandishing the hog. Have you ever had a friend who's truly irritating, but... but through their specific form of irritation, also somewhat entertaining. Yes. Which I, that, that is, there's a specific type of person, right? Yes. And it's like, you are so annoying, but I I find it kind of pleasing in a way. It's a fric- I, it causes a friction that I miss when it's gone. And I'm thinking of, yeah, specifically people who you would, in, uh, you would encounter in these circumstances, like somebody you might meet at camp. Mm-hmm. You've only got three weeks and there are not a lot of people there and you got to hang out with someone and this person kind of sucks, but at least they're like weird and interesting. In Better than way. being alone. Yeah. Yeah. I get that. Yep. Uh, I think we're in a general segment where there's just like a lot of shorter passages. Like I don't think we get to dig in, into well, let's anything. Get through. Was that the entirety? That was, that was it. for That's that's a paragraph. Yeah, okay. well. And re it House resident Kate Gompert. <laughs> Five. Okay, great. Ladies and gentlemen, back again. Kate Gompert and this depression issue. Some psychiatric patients, plus a certain percentage of people who've gotten so dependent on chemicals for feelings of well-being that when the chemicals have to be abandoned, they undergo a loss trauma that reaches way down deep into the soul's core systems. These persons know firsthand that there's more than one kind of so-called depression. One kind is low-grade and sometimes gets called anhedonia, Sorry. It takes us to NO280. Anhedonia was apparently coined by Ribot, a continental Frenchman who, in his 19th century Psychologie des Sentiments, says he meant it to denote the psychoequivalent of analgesia, which is the neurologic suppression of pain. Okay. Back to the text. That's anhedonia or simple melancholy. It's a kind of spiritual torpor in which one loses the ability to feel pleasure or attachment to things formerly important. The avid bowler drops out of his league and stays home at night staring dully at kickboxing cartridges. <laughs> the gourmand is off his feed. The sensualist... Mm, the, gourmand. the gourmand is off his feed. The sensualist finds his beloved unit all of a sudden to be so much feelingless gristle just hanging there. <laughs> the devoted wife and mother... Sensualist. <laughs> ...finds the thought of her family about his moving all of a sudden as a theorem of Euclid. It's all a kind of emotional novocaine, this form of depression. And while it's not overtly painful, its deadness is disconcerting and, well, depressing. 
Kate Gompertz always thought of this anhedonic state as a kind of radical abstracting of everything, a hollowing out of stuff that used to have affective content. Terms the undepressed toss around and take for granted as full and fleshy, happiness, joie de vivre, preference, love, are stripped to their skeletons and reduced to abstract ideas. They have, as it were, denotation, but not connotation. The anhedonic can still speak about happiness and meaning at all, but she has become incapable of feeling anything in them, of understanding anything about them, of hoping, uh, uh, sorry, of hoping anything about them, or of believing them to exist as anything more than concepts. Everything becomes an outline of the thing. Objects become schemata. <laughs> did, I, did I go a little too German on that? Schemata? 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 Jesus Christ. The world becomes a map of the world. An anhedonic can navigate but has no location, i.e. the anhedonic becomes, in the lingo of Boston AA, unable to identify. It's worth noting that among younger ETAs, the standard take on Dr. J.O. Incondenza's suicide attributes his putting his head in the microwave to this kind of anhedonia. This is maybe because anhedonia is often associated with the crises that affect uh, sorry, afflict extremely goal-oriented people who reach a certain age, having achieved all or more than all of what they'd hoped for. The what-does-it-all-mean type crisis of middle-aged Americans. In fact, this is, in fact, not what killed in Condensa at all. In fact, the presumption that he'd achieved all his goals and found that the achievement didn't confer meaning or joy on his existence says more about the students at ETA than it says about Orrin's and Hal's father. Still under the influence of the Delint-like carrot-and-stick philosophies of their hometown coaches, rather than the more paradoxical shtit slash incondensa slash Lyle school, younger athletes who can't help gauging their whole worth by their place in an ordinal ranking use the idea that achieving their goals and finding the gnawing sense of worthlessness still there in their own gut as a kind of psychic bogey, something that they can use to justify stopping on their way down to Don Drills to smell flowers along the ETA paths. The idea that achievement doesn't automatically confer interior worth is to them, still at this age, an abstraction, rather like the prospect of their own death. Caius is mortal, and so on. Uh, I don't know what that means to you. Caius? Caius, C-A-I-U-S. Caius? Uh, it must be something Greek, something Greek, Greek or, Roman. or Roman. Who cares? Who cares? I don't give a shit. Deep down, <laughs> uh, it didn't happen in my lifetime. It's bogus. Uh, it's, it's bogus. It's for the birds. Yeah. Deep down, they all still view the competitive carrot as the grail. They're mostly going through the motions when they invoke in Hedonia. They're mostly small children, keep in mind. Listen to any sort of sub-16 exchange you hear in the bathroom or food line. Hey there, how are you? Number eight this week is how I am. They all still worship the carrot. With the possible exception of the tormented Lamont Chu, they all still subscribe to the delusive idea that the continent's second-ranked 14-year-old feels exactly twice as worthwhile as the continent's number four. <laughs> Deluded or not, it's still a lucky way to live, even though it's temporary. It may well be that the lower-ranked little kids at ETA are proportionally happier than the higher-ranked kids, since we, who are mostly not small children, know it's more invigorating to want than to have, it seems. Though maybe this is just the inverse of the same delusion. Helen Condensa, though he has no idea yet of why his father really put his head in a specially dickied microwave in the year of the trial-sized Dove Bar, is pretty sure that it wasn't because of standard U.S. anhedonia. 
Hal himself hasn't had a bona fide intensity of interior life type emotion since he was tiny. He finds terms like joie and value to be like so many variables in rarefied equations, and he can manipulate them well enough to satisfy everyone but himself that he's in there, inside his own hull, as a human being. But in fact, he's far more robotic than John Wayne. One of his troubles with his moms is the fact that Avril and Condenza believes she knows him inside and out as a human being and an inter- internally worthy one at that, when in fact inside Hal there's pretty much nothing at all, he knows. His mom's Avril hears her own echoes inside him and thinks what she hears is him, and this makes Hal feel the one thing he feels to the limit lately. He is lonely. It's of some interest that the lively arts of the millennial USA treat anhedonia Am I saying anhedonia correctly? Yeah, that's right. And uh, internal emptiness as hip and cool. It's maybe the vestiges of the romantic glorification of Weltschmerz, <laughs> which means world weariness or hip ennui. Maybe it's the fact that most of the arts here are produced by world-weary and sophisticated older people and then consumed by younger people who not only consume art, but study it for clues on how to be cool, hip, we don't do this anymore, by the way. No. When's the last time you saw a movie that tried to teach you how to be cool? Never. There's nobody. Nothing's cool. Pulp Fiction in is cool. Yeah, yeah. He's he's go, he's going on ninety cinema, which is about movies about cool people. Yeah, no, nobody's cool in movies. When is the last? That's a great question. When was the last cool, truly cool character in a movie, like iconically cool? Drive, Ryan Gosling. That's a good example. That movie's like ten years old at this point. Yeah, twenty eleven or twenty ten. And even by then, that felt a little worn out. No, now everyone has to be relatable. Yes. Ugh. Awful. No, people in Atomic movie- Blonde, Charlie's Theron. She's very cool. In She's that movie. cool. Hey, that's a good movie. If you're listening to this, go watch that movie. Chris, I think our, our mutual favorite movies are movies about cool people. Yes, cool people. Uh, I don't need to be cool. I'm just satisfied to watch someone else be cool. Movies, people get too hung up on deciding if the characters in movies are like good or bad no all that matters is how pretty they are and if they are cooler than you a which be- they should be both a beautiful face huge a beautiful face and a, co- a cool guy a gigantic co- a cool guy doing cool things oceans 11 possibly violent oceans 11 possibly sexy uh wolf of wall street actually no that guy wasn't cool scratch that george I mean, Ford is not cool he's just rich yes i but yeah he's not he's not cool but he does cool stuff. He does cool stuff. Which is part of that movie. It's like, look at his awesome life. Look how awful he is for having it. I think you could argue that the th- uh, the two chicks that end up at the end of Spring Breakers are cool. Yes. Yeah, that's a cool movie. Just kill a bunch of people with a machine gun and I a bikini? I think we need to refine this this theory a little bit. But you guys, you guys out there in listener land know what we're talking about. Yeah. Right? You know what we're talking about. Just, yeah, keep in mind that uh, this book got published uh, two mm. years after Pulp Fiction. I yeah. think that helps. Blah, blah, blah. Uh... Okay, um, and keep in mind that for kids and younger people to be hip and cool is the same as to be admired and accepted and included and so unalone. Forget so-called peer pressure, it's more like peer hunger. No, we enter a spiritual puberty where we snap to the fact that the great transcendent horror is loneliness, excluded engagement in the self. Once we've hit this age, we will now give or take anything, wear any mask to fit, to be part of, not be alone, we young. The U.S. arts are our guide to inclusion, a how-to. We are shown how to fashion masks of ennui and jaded irony at a young age when the face is fictile enough to assume the shape of whatever it wears. And then it's stuck there. This so is, 
This is a very Gen X. Very nineties. Uh, yeah, very nineties. Yeah. This is no longer. This is, this no, is longer no longer a problem uh, because no, everyone. All movies t- teach you to do is how to consume more movies. And also, um, the pr- primary mode of becoming famous now, which is not being a movie star, it's being an influencer. That's yeah. automatically not a cool thing because that is. It, there is no mystery. It's hungry. It's hungry. It's thirsty. It's you have to put your entire life out there. And you know what? What wise man once said: Don't do anything out of hunger. Not, not even, even eating. eating. True Detective season two. And then it's stuck there. The weary cynicism that saves us from gooey sentiment and unsophisticated naivete. No, even though the influencers are all sentiment. It's all gooey all sentiment. sentiment. Yes. Relatability, feelings, emo- Sorry, feeling, facts or feelings. We're doing a lot of interruptions this, this app. No, this is, I didn't realize that this was this theory of like youth, coolness, and earnestness was going yeah. to pop up now. I mean, in the time, he's broadly correct, but it, it this is one of the things that has aged the worst out of this whole thing. Yeah. But that's good. Yeah. Well, we'll talk about sentiment equals naivete on this continent, at least since the reconfiguration. One of the things sophisticated viewers have always liked about J.O. and Condensa's The American Century as seen through a brick is its unsubtle thesis that naivete is the last true terrible sin in the theology of millennial America. And since sin is the sort of thing that can be talked about only figuratively, it's natural that himself's dark little cartridge was mostly about a myth viz. that queerly persistent U.S. myth that cynicism and naivete are mutually exclusive. Mm. Hal, who's empty but not dumb, (laughs) theorizes (laughs) privately that what passes for hip, cynical transcendence of sentiment is really some kind of fear of being really human, since to be really human, at least as he conceptualizes it, is probably to be unavoidably sentimental and naive and goo-prone and generally pathetic, is to be so, in some basic interior way forever infantile, some sort of not-quite-right-looking infant dragging itself anaclytically around the map with big wet eyes and froggy soft skin, huge skull, gooey drool. One of the really American things about Hal probably is the way he despises what it is he's really lonely for, this hideous internal self, incontinent of sentiment and need, that pules and writhes just under the hip empty mask, anhedonia. Which takes us to EndNote 281. This had been one of Hal's deepest and most pregnant abstractions, one he'd come up with once while getting secretly high in the pump room, that we're all lonely for something we don't know we're lonely for. How else to explain the curious feeling that he goes around feeling like he misses somebody he's never even met? Without the universalizing abstraction, the feeling would make no sense. That's the segment? Uh, No, it's not. I just... Before you came into my life, I missed you so bad. <laughs> missed you so bad. I missed you so, so bad. There's also a national lyric that talks about um, missing someone before you met them. No, there's, a, there's some more. What do you think, though? How much more? A lot more. Uh, two and a half pages. Let's, let's power through. Power through. The American century has seen through a brick's main and famous key image is of a piano string vibrating, a high D it looks like, vibrating and then making a very sweet unadorned solo sound indeed, and then a little thumb comes into the frame, a blunt, moist, pale, and yet dingy thumb with disreputable stuff crusted in one of the nail corners, small and unlined, clearly an infantile thumb, and as it touches the piano string, the high, sweet sound immediately dies, and the silence that follows is excruciating. Later in the film, after much mordant and didactic panoramic brick following... (laughs) 
<laughs> We're back at the piano string and the thumb is removed and the high sweet sound recommences, extremely pure and solo. And yet now somehow as the volume increases, now with something rotten about it underneath, mm, there's something rotten. There's something uh, <laughs> sick, sweet, and overripe and potentially putrid about the one clear high D as its volume increases and increases, the sound getting purer and louder and more dysphoric, that word again, until after a surprisingly few seconds, we find ourselves right in the middle of the pure, undampered sound, longing and maybe even praying for the return of the natal thumb to shut it up. Hal isn't old enough yet to know that this is because numb emptiness isn't the worst kind of depression. That dead-eyed anhedonia is but a remora on the ventral flank of the true predator, the great white shark of pain. Authorities term this condition clinical depression or involutional depression or unipolar dysphoria. Instead of just an incapacity for feeling, a deadening of soul, the predator-grade depression Kate, Gompert's all, Kate Gompert always feels as she withdraws from secret marijuana is itself a feeling. It goes by many names, anguish, despair, torment, or QV Burton's melancholia, or Yevtushenko's more authoritative psychotic depression, but Kate Gompert, down in the trenches with the thing itself, knows it simply as it. It is a level of psychic pain wholly incompatible with human life as we know it. It is a sense of radical and thoroughgoing evil, not just as a feature, but as the essence of conscious existence. It is, it is a sense of poisoning that pervades the self at the self's most elementary levels. It is a nausea of the cells and soul. It is an unnumb in intuition in which the world is fully rich and animate and unmap-like and also thoroughly painful and malignant and antagonistic to the self, which depressed self it bellows on, billows on and coagulates around and wraps in its black folds and absorbs into itself so, so that an almost mystical unity is achieved with a world every constituent of which means painful harm to the self. Its emotional character, the feeling Gompert describes it as, is probably mostly indescribable except as a sort of double bind in, in which any slash all of the alternatives we associate with human agency, sitting or standing, doing or resting, speaking or keeping silent, living or dying, are not just unpleasant, but literally horrible. It is also lonely on a level that cannot be conveyed. There is no way Kate Gompert could ever even begin to make someone else understand what clinical depression feels like, not even another person who is herself clinically depressed, because a person in such a state is incapable of empathy with any other living thing. This anhedonic inability to identify is also an integral part of it. If a, a person in physical pain has a hard time attending to anything except that pain, takes us to end note 282 the big reason why people in pain are so self-absorbed and unpleasant to be around <laughs> back to the text a clinically depressed person cannot even perceive any other person or thing as independent of the universal pain that is digesting her cell by cell everything is part of the problem and there is a no and there is no solution it is a hell for one the authoritative term psychotic depression makes Kate Gompert feel especially lonely, specifically the psychotic part. Think of it this way. Two people are screaming in pain. One of them is being tortured with electric current. The other is not. The screamer who's being tortured with electric current is not psychotic. Her screams are circumstantially appropriate. The screaming person who's not being tortured, however, is psychotic, since the outside parties making the diagnoses can see no electrodes or measurable amperage. 
One of the least pleasant things about being psychotically depressed on a ward full of psychotically depressed patients is coming to see that none of them is really psychotic, that their screams are entirely appropriate to circumstances, <laughs> certain circumstances, part of whose special charm is that they are undetectable by any outside party. Thus, the loneliness. It's a closed circuit. The current is both applied and received from within. The so-called psychotically depressed person who tries to kill herself doesn't do so out of, quote, hopelessness or any abstract conviction that, conviction that life's assets and debits do not square. And surely not because death seems suddenly appealing. The person in whom its invisible agony reaches a certain unendurable level will kill herself the same way a trapped person will eventually jump from the window of a burning high-rise. Make no mistake about people who leap from burning windows. Their terror of falling from a great height is still just as great as it would be for you and me standing speculatively at the same window just checking out the view, i.e. the fear of falling remains a constant. The variable here is the other terror, the fire's flames. When the, fire, when the flames get close enough, falling to death becomes the slightly less terrible of two terrors. Lord of the Rings, the two terrors. <laughs> it's not desiring the fall, it's terror of the flames. And yet nobody down on the sidewalk looking up and yelling, don't and hang on, can understand the jump. Not really. You'd have to personally have been trapped and felt flames to really understand a terror way beyond falling. But and so, the idea of a person <laughs> in the grip of it being bound by a suicide contract, some well-meaning substance abuse halfway house makes her sign, is simply absurd. Because such a contract will constrain such a person only until the exact psychic circumstances that made the contract necessary in the first place assert themselves, invisibly and indescribably. That the well-meaning halfway house staff does not understand its overriding terror will only make the depressed resident feel more alone. One fellow psychotically depressed patient Kate Gompert came to know at Newton Wellesley Hospital in Newton two years ago was a man in his 50s. He was a civil engineer whose hobby was model trains, like from Lionel Trains, Inc., etc., for which he erected incredibly intricate systems of switching and track that filled his basement recreation room. His wife brought photographs of the trains and networks of trellis and track into the locked ward to help remind him. The man said he had been suffering from psychotic depression for 17 straight years, and Kate Gompert had had no reason to disbelieve him. He was stocky and swart with thinning hair and hands that he held very still in his lap as he sat. Twenty years ago, he had slipped on a patch of three-in-one brand oil from his model train tracks and bonked his head on the cement floor of his basement rec room in Wellesley Hills, and when he woke up in the ER, he was depressed beyond all human endurance and stayed that way. He'd never once tried suicide, though he confessed that he yearned for unconsciousness without end. His wife was very devoted and loving. She went to Catholic Mass every day. She was very devout. The psychotically depressed man, too, went to daily Mass when he was not institutionalized. He prayed for relief. He still had his job and his hobby. He went to work regularly, taking medical leaves only when the invisible torment got too bad for him to trust himself, or when there was some radical new treatment the psychiatrist wanted him to try. They tried tricyclics, MAOIs, insulin comas, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which takes us to EndNote 283, SSRIs, of which Zoloft and the ill-fated Prozac were the ancestors. Prozac was ill-fated by then? We were just talking about this. We were talking about Prozac. Pro how as Prozac low-key fell off. Well, high-key fell off. High-key fell off. Well, I was just, it, he might, David Foster Wallace might be anti-Prozac and think that... Uh, it it drives people insane. At the, at this point, Prozac, hey, Prozac was on Nation. the market for like six years. 
It was new. Pe- people thought that it was going to give you brain cancer. Uh, Prozac Nation, baby. Yeah. Shout out, shout out Elizabeth Wurzel, the god. Um, <clears throat> back to the text. The new and side effect laden quadricyclics. They'd scanned his lobes and effective matrices for lesions and scars. Nothing worked. Not even high amperage ECT relieved it. This happens sometimes. Some cases of depression are beyond human aid. The man's case gave Kate Gompert the howling fantods. The idea of this man going to work and to mass and building miniaturized railroad networks day after day after day while feeling anything like what Kate Gompert felt in that ward was simply beyond her ability to imagine. The Rashiano spiritual part of her knew this man and his wife must be possessed of a courage way off any sort of known courage chart. But in her toxified soul, Kate Gompert felt only a paralyzing horror at the idea of the squat, dead-eyed man laying toy tracks slowly and carefully in the silence of his wood-paneled rec room, the silence total, except for the sounds of the track being oiled and snapped together and laid into place, the man's head full of poison and worms, and every cell in his body (laughs) screaming for relief from flames no one else could help with or even feel. The permanently psychotic depressed man was finally transferred to a place on Long Island to be evaluated for a radical new type of psychosurgery where they supposedly went in and yanked out your whole limbic system, which is the part of the brain that causes all sentiment and feeling. The man's fondest dream was anhedonia, complete psychic numbing, i.e. death in life. The prospect of radical psychosurgery was the dangled carrot that Kate Guest still gave the man's life enough meaning for him to hang onto the windowsill by his fingernails, which were probably black and gnarled from the flames. That and his wife. He seemed genuinely to love his wife and she him. He went to bed every night at home holding her, weeping for it to be over while she prayed or did that devout thing with beads. <laughs> the couple had gotten uh, Kate Gompert's mother's address and had sent Kate an Xmas card the last two years. Mr. and Mrs. Ernest Feaster of Wellesley Hills, Massachusetts, stating that she was in their prayers and wishing her all available joy. Kate Gompert doesn't know whether Mr. Ernest Feaster's limbic system got yanked out or not, whether he achieved anhedonia. The Xmas cards had had excruciating little watercolor pictures of locomotives on them. She could barely stand to think about them, even at the best of times, which the present was not. Well, you know what? Maybe it's the little model trains that are actually the thing that keeps them going. Maybe, the she, action maybe is, Kate is should juice. get a hobby. Maybe Kate, honestly, Kate, Kate should go uh, touch grass. Yeah. Um, touch grass, sweetie. No, you, you, there's so much more to try. There's um, uh, there's EMDR. There's uh, uh, ketamine treatments. There's uh, there's psilocybin. Has she tried MDMA? Has she tried converting to Buddhism? Yeah, uh, MDMA, all that stuff. Um, has she has she gone to a rave? <laughs> um, has she felt plur? Has she tried to achieve plur? We almost we almost achieved plur, uh, which is what we will be doing at this wedding. Uh, anyway, uh, the one thing that I wanted to pick out of that Central Park where we were yapping about movies and stuff, uh, the thing that Hal uh, reminding us about being the baby. Yes. Um, by the time this comes out, uh, people will probably possibly have heard my interview with Jerry Casale of Devo. Yes. Uh, and I didn't get to ask him this question, but one of the last ones on my list was that his fascination with Bougie Boy Boogie Boy, the uh, character Mark Mothersbaugh plays where he wears a giant baby mask. Ah. He's talking about uh, 
you know, the, the, the giant baby within all of us, as old as the mountains, but uh, still waiting to be born. Wow. And I just wanted to ask him what that fascination with it, Devo's fascination with a giant baby man is. And I feel like it's the same fascination here, you know. Feral, the feral infant. The feral infant. The, the fear Hal has of being the baby, of, of the, the snotty, uh, snotting little baby inside of us all. Yeah. Wah, wah, wah. Bitch, wah, 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 wah. Bitch, I'm a little baby. No, this is, it's funny that this is like a past, a patchwork of shorter chapters when all the themes are really starting to, to coalesce. Folks, we got themes. We got themes. Uh, fucking new sincerity, man. Uh, being, being ironic is cool. Uh, but, you won't get any less lonely if you're being ironic and I, that actually you might need to channel that big slobbery inner baby. Uh, a lot of people on TikTok I've noticed like to talk about like healing their inner child, which seems both fresh. And yet that was totally like a nineties thing, right? Yes. The, the idea it's, of it's like, it's interesting. The, the YouTube or the, the TikTok uh, armchair analysis is interesting. And I, I guess, you know, this is the same thing that you'd say always about the use. Mm. You know, they always, the, the funny thing where it's like, you know, that particular tone of TikTok where they're like, listen up, y'all. I just heard about, uh, you know, Lacanian philosophy two minutes ago. And let me tell you how you're all uh, interacting with the artist wrong. Yeah, yeah, totally. You know? Yeah. Uh, but it is like, I don't know, all, all these buzzwords about like self-help and ment- mentality being spewed by like 22-year-olds yeah. as authoritative. Yeah. Which I think, you know, not not to old old man yells at cloud, but yeah. the, the current like mental health, I think there's a lot. There's a lot, a lot of bad stuff right now about the way young people I- engage with the concept of mental health because it is mediated not just by the algorithm but by like corporations who are trying mm-hmm. to sell them stuff. But at least they're aware. If there's anything that I could hand it to the generation after us, it's that they're aware of this stuff. Like I didn't have a, a solid awareness of like what mental health really was even supposed to be. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it, it's true. I mean, you you get you get improvements, but then you also get improvements because like yes. yes it is good uh de-evolution is real uh yes where, where it is good to be generally aware of these things but it's also the real thing that you must learn the truth about de-evolution is that we are all devo sorry i'm, I'm in big devo mindset no, but that you know that that the the biggest truth is that we are all idiots yes and morons yes and that if you are pretending to be or authoritarian authoritative or something or if you think you are authoritative about something Unless you are literally the authority on it, uh, I'm sorry. You are you are deluding yourselves. Yeah, we are all we are all very dumb, and well, that is one of the biggest yes. re- revelations that you can have. That you, I, I feel like, usually hits at around age 25 or 26. Mm. Just the total understanding of how uh, completely idi- idiotic you are. Yes, and the acceptance of that, the radical acceptance of your own idiocy, and yes. how you must move through it and past it. Yes, I think I I think this is all I think this is all good because I do think. One of the biggest mistakes in life, in in any sense, intellectually, spiritually, is assuming that you know you have all the answers. No, boy, oh boy, yes. you simply don't. Yes, absolutely. every every human being is born a. Oh my God, you were born like nine pounds, which is the size of like three of those really big bags of M and M's. Probably this, the the pound of my brain. Your right skin, now. your skin is made of slime. Uh, you can't do anything on your own. Babies We've are seen, so stupid. As, as we are pre- privy to see, uh, uh, more, more and more of our, our friends and, and relatives are giving birth to children that we look at, and boy, they are just just potatoes, really, just spuds. They are spuds. Uh, 
And it, but then also, but you you were once that you were a big guy. I'm a big lady. I'm a big guy. I'm a big guy. Uh, once you were a baby, you couldn't even walk on your own. You had your mom and dad had to carry you around everywhere. Get get in touch with that well, man. That's, but that's the thing about being the big baby is that it is both a fear that you will never evolve past the baby, but also a fantasy of being uh empty in that way the way that Hal feels that he is empty but also it is it, it is fantastical mm. or, or aspirational to be empty in the way that a baby is so you yes. don't have to worry about anything you don't have to think You're you think of calm. a you think of a baby as empty i think of a baby as full of uh, all the all the problems of the world projected onto that tiny little body i think it i mean you know i guess you, it depends this is like a glass I'm the, this is a catholic thing i guess Glass half empty, glass half full <laughs> thing. Well, I mean, I think the mental fantasy is is if, on, if only to be, and this is maybe also what Kate Gobbert is talking about yeah. with it, is like if only to be alive but empty of the fear and anxieties yeah. and, and all the depression and, and you know, the, the, the horrors that come along yes. with consciousness. Yes. And so, you know, both, I think it is both the fear, the fear of the, the, of the baby, of being the baby, <laughs> which is that you will never develop, that you will always be helpless, that perhaps even other people will see you as, yeah. as weak and helpless. But the fantasy of being the baby, that maybe you could be thoughtless, empty, uh, helpless once more. I think the the uh, loop I'd like to tie in is that the the difference between a baby and an adult, uh, a lot of it is, not, it's not just development, it's communication. And uh, you Kate cannot communicate yes. with anybody about how shitty she feels, mm-hmm. and you even not her even fellow, not even the other people who are tried to kill themselves or are in this or have had suicidal ideation and are in the psych ward. She can't even really empathize with them. The idea of empathy, empathy comes through communication. But when you're a baby, all you know how to do is scream. Yes, as we've heard sometimes firsthand. Oh yeah, uh, in our neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, it's all it's all quite a lot to think about. It is, uh, but the, but also the dream to never think. The dream is never think. Yeah. But also, I would say too is that th- this is where you know if you're thinking of like personal experience, this is where I do run up against kind of a you know I I I know what it's like to maybe do some of the th- you know I've played tennis and I've uh, done acid for example, but like uh, I've never I don't think I've ever experienced that. Uh, psych- I've never experienced psychotic depression. I just have to take people's word for it. Yes, which is one of the right. hardest things to do. It is very hard uh, to put yourself in in those mentalities. Yeah, I mean, you almost don't want to. Yeah, well, you you, you certainly don't want to. Yeah, I mean, I've certainly had anxiety and depression, but not clinical <laughs> clinical depression or anything like. Yeah, like that. or not not the you know David Foster Wallace have written about this before. I think a few episodes ago, I talked about the uh, short story he wrote called The Depressed Person, which I think. He's kind of getting that. That's kind of Kate Gompert that he's getting into. That mm-hmm. uh, just someone who is like so, so unbelievably depressed that they it's like all they think about. They can't communicate about it, and it makes them unpleasant to be around. Mm-hmm. I'm 99 percent sure that the two women walking in front of the man of war that poor Tony starts speculating whether he can um, yeah, rob steal, them yeah. is Kate Gompert, and then one of the black ladies, um, Clinette, possibly Clinette. coming back from a meeting. Okay. Because uh, I, I, I remember that visual of them coming back from a meeting. Dysphoria. That's the that's the only other thing I wanted to talk about. How about a bar called Dysphoria? Dysphor- dysphoria. It's funny. The, the the TV show is called Euphoria, but it seems like everyone there is pretty dysphoric that's in different true. ways. They should call it Dysphoria. The, the thing about Dysphoria that I wanted to talk about is that it suggests some kind of expectation that there is a way things should be. Mm, but it's not it. It's, it's, it's it. 
It's not it. Sorry, is we're, it, we're watching tennis highlights right now, and a Federer, a young Federer, is getting a zesty inner thigh massage from <laughs> his <young> coach. <laughs> Federer's hairdo right now is is awesome. Yeah, he had such an elegant. He had like vaguely Orlando Bloom. That's vibes what I was thinking in Orlando his early Bloom. career. Yeah, he looks like a little pirate. Anyway, back to the dysphoria. Sorry. Yeah, the dysphoria implies that there is euphoria, but you know, and especially in our current moment, I you know I feel like that is something definitely to be litigated because it doesn't feel like anybody's feeling particularly euphoric. And I would argue that the current spate of, um, you know, like anti-trans yeah. program is coupled with an, you know, I, I don't know like this is a revolutionary thought, but yeah. it's like, is coupled with this equally creeping insecurity among those I don't know, your Ben Shapiro types. About what masculinity is yes. or femininity. Because the assumption there, if they are issuing these proclamations, and Ben Shapiro's Abby right now is fucking the logo of that god-awful, obnoxious fucking Matt Walsh movie, What is a Woman? What is a Woman? Uh, it's, it's, so there he's, this is like the thing he's promoing, which implies that he has some kind of like authority on like the answer to what is a woman mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. the corollary, the necessary corollary question of what is a man. And the answer, the answer is what is a man? It is certainly not whatever Ben Shapiro is. <laughs> and he knows it. And that's and he why he's it. acting like and this. That's what, that's obvious. It's so obvious what the fear is, is that yeah. like the existence of trans people makes the, the, and, and the legitimacy, the legitimacy of a trans people makes the people who, rest their entire sense of self and their political project on the like holding like one concept yeah of ma- of what is a man in their head yeah yeah the Again, whole house of cards the it's whole house so of cards tumbles down frustrating yeah. it's very frustrating especially when it's yeah. it does seem obvious to by the way as molly and i discussed earlier the answer to what is a woman it is simply a vibe. It's a vibe. It's a vibe. And you either, you either catch it or you don't. You either catch it or you don't. Or you, I mean, and if you want to catch it, you will catch it. That's yeah. whatever. Also, I'd say um, the best thing about being a woman is her prerogative to have a little fun. Absolutely. And I think if you if that's truly what you believe in your heart, yeah, you're a woman. Who cares? Uh, I also, I can't answer the question, <laughs> what is a woman? But I can say the guitar is like one. The li- <laughs> Yes, absolutely. Uh, the yeah, the you you are very right, and yeah, I don't think it's necessarily groundbreaking or anything, but it's the if the foundational belief is that you are a man and a man is a certain thing, and that gets uh, rightfully disrupted by someone else, then what? Like, wow, of course you're gonna freak out and do whatever, yeah. but like, I don't I don't know how to I certainly don't know how to fix uh, yeah, that. Yeah, again, I'm not not trying to be profound or anything. I'm just mostly just frustrating my shared. Uh, anger and frustration with all the people who who point this out of how stupid it is and how like overtly obvious it is and you know and especially that all all those people tend to then try to hide between it'd be like logics facts and reason guys yeah and you're you're like buddy i've got some logic for you right fucking here (laughs) i'm I'm doing a crotch grab yeah of course of course um i I think the thing to bring it back to dysphoria, which uh, yes. David Foster Wallace brings here in, in several contexts, is like uh, 
dysphoria involves feeling within yourself like something isn't right. Yes. That there is a right way to feel and that you cannot access that. Yeah. And in order to understand dysphoria, even if you don't feel it, you have to believe someone when they say that they feel it. And that includes trans people. That includes what, you know, people uh, with mental health issues, whatever. And that's like the hardest thing for, it's like one of my least favorite things about the human race is that a lot of people, due to the material conditions that we experience every day, have a terrible time trying to conceive of the idea of empathy for other people until it happens to you. Until it happens to you. Until it happens to you. So like it's, and that's where I, and I do think David Foster Wallace might be shaking his, someone else's shoulders a little bit being like, how can we get people to care? I don't, I don't know how to tell you that you should care about me. It's tough. I I do think you're right that it that, and you know he talks he touches on another classic Chapo theme in this uh the, the insane loneliness and the drive to loneliness that modern culture produces. Yes. But it is like one of those things where, it's like, everybody ends up being their own little, their own little engine of their own destiny, which is what you know our society and culture is supposed to produce as like it's a good thing you know what liberalism is trying to produce yes. everybody's their own little engine yeah and their own little driver toot, toot. uh toot, and yet toot. <laughs> then it just makes it incredibly difficult to imagine the drivers and the other engines yep. and how they might be working right because the entirety of the universe is contained in your head <laughs> uh which maybe is part of existence, but are certainly society and culture is, is not helping and is not encouraging people to imagine the other little universes mm. uh, around them or feel part of a bigger universe. Yeah, which here here's two ways to do that, uh, which are basically posed as solutions and in this text, possibly for why this uh, model train guy hasn't killed himself yet. He has a wife and he has religion. And he has a train. And he has a train. There you go. Hobbies, uh, love and God, God, love love and hobbies. (laughs) I was going to say God, love and public transportation. And God, love and public transportation. Uh, is which is also community because community. You're you you have you cannot be by your you can't be alone. Uh, as a human being, you cannot be alone on a train. It simply does not work. You need yeah, you can't be alone on a train. You need to be you need to be with your fellow train members and the conductor. Yep. Uh, all right. Uh, I have to ask you questions about when mom can come over tomorrow. So uh, we need to sign off. Yeah. Uh, um, bon, bon voyage. Roger Federer is eating a, a, a banana. Uh, <laughs> to all our listeners, sorry I was so short with you at the beginning of this episode. We love you. Chris has a lot on his mind. Uh, if, you're, if you're listening to this, we're already... It's What is the Drake album called? Uh, if Wait. Oh, shit. What is the Drake Mr. Policeman, I gave you all the clues. I was going to say, if you're listening to this, we're already married. If you're reading this, it's too late. Okay. If you're hearing this, this, it's too late. It's too late. We're already married. Yeah. All right. Bye.